Welcome to The Thing About Austin, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zan. And I'm Diane. And this episode, we're talking about Irish melodies. We are drawing our reference today from Emma. The scene takes place in Miss Bates's home after Miss Bates and Mrs. Weston come and fetch Emma and Harriet for a visit. When they walk into the sitting room, Jane Fairfax and Frank Churchill have been together with the elderly Mrs. Bates as chaperone. Frank is busy fixing the rivet on Mrs. Bates' spectacles. And if you think we're not going to eventually do an entire episode just on, on that rivet. these glasses, <laughs> yes. Believe me, it's happening. <laughs> and he and Jane have also been fixing the imbalance in Jane's new pianoforte from a mysterious donor. Uh-huh, mm-hmm. <laughs> Frank and Emma have a running joke slash speculation that Jane's piano is from Mr. Dixon, the husband of Jane's best friend who lives in Ireland. So Frank is really leaning into that theory in the scene, although using Colonel Campbell's name, but Emma is meant to think he means Mr. Dixon while Jane is meant to know he means himself. Layers upon layers here. For sure. (laughs) So he starts looking at the music that has been sent along with the piano and says the following to Emma. Here's something quite new to me. Do you know it? Kramer. And here are a new set of Irish melodies. That from such a quarter one might expect. This was all sent with the instrument. Very thoughtful of Colonel Campbell, was not it? He knew Miss Fairfax could have no music here. I honor that part of the attention particularly. It shows it to have been so thoroughly from the heart. Nothing hastily done, nothing incomplete. True affection only could have prompted it. Just the king of double talk. Oh my gosh, he's talking out both sides of his face in this episode. My goodness. (laughs) So when Austen writes this reference to Irish melodies in this novel, she actually writes it as lowercase Irish melodies, like melodies, lowercase rather than identifying this as a specific title of a collection of art songs. So there is a small possibility that this is referring to a curated selection of piano pieces with Irish origins, but really most scholars today agree, and most of Austin's contemporaries would have understood that a new set of Irish melodies refers specifically to the published volumes under the title Irish Melodies by Thomas More. Patrick Piggott, for example, writes that the reference is almost certainly the fourth set of Thomas More's immensely popular collections. Yes. So so Irish Melodies is this rather large project that was undertaken by Thomas More, who was first and foremost known as a poet and author, but he was also on a small scale a composer. So the idea of the project came from William and James Power, their Dublin music publishers, who wanted to forward Irish works that could kind of promote Ireland's national voice in a way that was more kind of positive than than a lot of the political speech that's going on at this time. At the turn of the century, there's a lot of political speech going on about the Act of Union that was enacted, and as well as um, repealing some of the penal laws for Catholics. So their job, their, their idea was that, hey, we can make music a way to promote kind of this broader idea of, of Irish identity. And so in the preface of the first volume of the Irish Melodies, Moore wrote that composers of the continent have enriched their operas and sonatas with melodies borrowed from Ireland, very often without even the honesty of acknowledgement. And then he goes on to say that the Irish have, quote, left these treasures, here he's referring to the Irish airs and tunes, in a great degree unclaimed and fugitive. 
So what he's really doing here is this, this statement is essentially Moore's way of staking claim to this Irish culture, the, the music and Irish culture that's being kind of bandied about in Europe. Moore's way of remedying this issue of unclaimed Irish influence was to largely draw from a compiled list of Irish folk tunes, airs, and melodies from Edward Bunting's list of a general collection of the ancient Irish music. He then went to work creating new poetic lyrics to set to these melodies. And there's some debate about how he first came to Bunting sources, whether he first came across it while at university, or whether it was his publishers, the powers, who wanted him to use it. But he, he kind of has this list to draw from, right? And so after Moore finalizes the poem and the melody setting that he likes, he then passed on the materials to a fellow Irish composer, Sir John Andrew Stevenson, who then created the final musical arrangement for the piano and voice. Now, Moore and Stevenson then took their first collection of 12 songs and published them in 1808. That's when the first volume of Irish Melodies comes out. And the table of contents specifically lists the titles of the poems and the titles of the traditional melodies or airs that the poems are set to. So this way, they are able to claim the heritage of the tunes, while Moore's lyrics for these art songs can breathe kind of new life into them. And so this first volume is nearly an immediate success particularly in English drawing rooms. So Moore and Stevenson continue to crank out an additional nine volumes over the next 26 years. And it is worth mentioning that the, the last couple of volumes were published after Stevenson had passed away. And so Henry Bishop had helped finish the, the last of the compositions. The Irish melodies were so immensely popular that they were performed in pretty much all of the drawing rooms in England and many on the continent as well. To put their popularity into context, Moore made 500 pounds each year each year for seven years off of the success of just the first two volumes of Melodies, which is some serious money <laughs> during this time. And that's not his only source of income. That's just one thing that he's publishing right now. Yeah. He's just, he's getting like TV residuals, essentially. <laughs> his, his hit sitcom is now in reruns and he's just raking in the cash. Yes. Syndication money is just coming on in. Yes. <laughs> he was also a bit of a rock star during this time. Ladies writing him love notes and just generally swooning over him. <laughs> Thomas Moore. A musical hottie of his time. <laughs> and in the 19th century, the music was so popular in the U.S. that Americans purchased 1.5 million copies of the last rows of summer sheet music. So its popularity also reached across the pond. Right. Yeah. And, and that's just one of the songs from Irish Melodies, right, that's selling that much. So it just I think that helps really contextualize like transatlantic rock star success right there. And so Moore was also massively popular in Ireland. Not just because, you know, his songs were absolute bangers, but they were considered by many, you know, these poems that he's using, they kind of spoke to the heart of Irish national oppression and the condition in Ireland. So songs like Silent O'Moyle, also called the Song of Fanula, which is one of my favorites, very specifically addresses Irish culture and politics. So Silent O'Moyle is spoken from the perspective of Fanula, one of the children of Lear from Irish myth. And she and her brothers have been turned into swans and banished to the Sea of Moyle, suffering from mistreatment, and they dream of this release from all of that torment. And so in Moore's song, the second verse of the song overtly connects Fanula's plight to that of Erin or Ireland, and this kind of just intense yearning for freedom from this kind of oppressive curse that's handling. And it's like, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, that's England. Putting it all out there for right. <laughs> In case you needed some subtext, he's saying Irish myth, <laughs> Irish condition right now, English oppression. 
do you need the footnote? Right. I'm happy to give that right, to you. Exactly. Yeah. Other songs like Avenging and Bright are even less subtle about Ireland's disquiet under English rule. Even though it is again couched in a narrative of Irish myth, the first line of the poem is Avenging and Bright fall the swift sword of Aaron. And the last stanza reads, Yes, monarch, though sweet are our home recollections. Though sweet are the tears that from tenderness fall. Though sweet are our friendships, our hopes, our affections. Revenge on a tyrant is sweetest of all. He's not pulling any punches with that last kind of bit, right? He's like, oh, monarch, revenge, tyrant. It's really overt. And what slays me is that you know that these songs are being sung by fashionable young women in English drawing rooms. Like, oh, look at this beautiful art song that I can sing. And so there's definitely something delightfully subversive about these Irish melodies. Getting back to Austin and how this relates to what's happening in Emma... As we mentioned at the top of the episode, Emma and Frank have this ongoing joke, haha, very funny kids, come on, (laughs) that Jane Fairfax might have a thing going on with Mr. Dixon, who is from Ireland, also married to Jane's best friend. So when Frank brings up Irish melodies and then goes on to talk about how someone with true affection purchased these for Jane, he's playing a real double Mm -hmm. game here. He is signaling to Jane that he really loves her, you know, there's... He's trying to do some coded sentimentality like, oh, these were given to you with a spirit of true affection. That's me, babe. Hey, (laughs) finger guns. But then he's also really leaning into the Irish connection to tantalize Emma and kind of pull her into this weird web of deceit. You know, when he says, and here are a new set of Irish melodies that from such a quarter one might expect. Yeah. You can hear that kind of, well, you know what that means. So that is absolutely him winking at Emma and saying, see, this is from Mr. Dixon, you know, Jane's Irish paramour. I, It's just the worst in the scene. It just also doesn't make any sense because he could have easily just stuck with the whole like, oh, these are from somebody with true affection. Mm-hmm. That would apply to Colonel Campbell, right? you know? Yes. And I suppose in fairness to Frank, Austin does write that Jane Fairfax has a smile of secret delight here. Since Jane knows that the true affection Frank is speaking of is meant for her, but I have a feeling she would be a lot less delighted if she was fully aware that every time Frank says Colonel Campbell, Emma is translating that to Mr. Dixon. And obviously Emma is not blameless here as she is the originator of this imagined love triangle. But I personally hold Frank as the person who actually knows the truth and who is engaged to Jane, right? far more responsible for allowing it to continue. And I don't know, not doing more to steer Emma away. Instead, he encourages it. And of course, we know this whole Dixon fiction starts to really wear on Jane, as we see later on during the alphabet box scene, which is a particularly bad moment. And again, none of this makes sense because there was absolutely no reason for him to bring in the Mr. Dixon connection. Yeah. Absolutely not. I do not understand it at all. Yeah, he's he's very intentionally playing both ladies in this scene, which is just like, ah, he's such a bad boyfriend. <laughs> and so so while like in this context where he's saying like, oh, this music was given to you as a gift. And, and it really does actually make sense as a gift for a musical young woman during this period. It should be pointed out, though, that Frank's gift here has a potential additional layer Throughout the novel, we're led to understand that Jane is more than just kind of an average pianist, right? She's got skills. And so once we know that, it's important to realize that 
Irish melodies are actually a little bit simplistic. Like they're, they're not virtuoso pieces. So works by Johann Baptist Kramer, which Frank also mentions as part of the gift, that's more fitting for her skill set, right? So, so the, the Irish melodies, there's, <laughs> there's no reason for him to be giving this gift except for this kind of little subterfuge game. It's so intentional. That's the, that's the part that's kind of blowing my mind here, right? Is that the Irish melodies, it's driving this plot point for Emma. It's, it's not serving any other real function here. And it's also part, it's yet another one of the kind of clues in the reading Emma as a mystery novel. Mm -hmm. Because again, you as a reader, if this is your first time reading it, you're kind of like, oh, oh, mm -hmm. maybe, maybe mm -hmm. she really did have a thing going with Mr. Dixon. Right. Because he's setting that up. And so Emma, our like amateur cozy mystery sleuth over here, she's kind of like, oh, more evidence. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, throughout this whole scene, she's like, oh, Jane is so busted. Like, she's thinking this. So as Catherine Shanks-Libbin points out in her article, Music, Character, and Social Standing in Jane Austen's Emma, Austen would probably have chosen Kramer for Jane Fairfax because his music was both fashionable and serious, a worthy choice for an accomplished woman pianist. And then later in the scene, Jane plays Robin Adair, which is also a more complex composition than Moore's Melodies. So much like with all of this, there is actually a lot more that we can unpack about this reference to Robin Adair, and it will eventually have its own episode. But it's worth mentioning here because there is a possible Irish Melodies connection. Right. The tune for Robin Adair has an unclear provenance, but it is probably Irish. And what's interesting, again, the connection to Irish Melodies is that the exact same tune is actually used in one of Thomas More's Irish Melodies in the first volume. The song is called Aaron, the Tear and Smile in Thine Eye, under the name, the tune name is Eileen Arun. So there's this possible additional layered connection to Irish melodies with this Robin Adair reference. So it's a very densely packed kind of moment for Frank to be just the worst. Frank Churchill, terrible boyfriend, but a bit of a musicologist. What are we going to say? Right, that's right. <laughs> what I do think is interesting about this reference to Irish melodies is that in the 2020 adaptation of Emma, during the Coles party, Emma and Jane are both asked to perform, right? So Emma starts out and she actually, in this, in this adaptation, she sings what is arguably Thomas More's most famous song from Irish Melodies, The Last Rose of Summer. So that's the one that sold the 1.5 million copies of sheet music in the, in the States. And so having Emma perform this is a very apt and appropriate song for someone with her skills and talents. Like I said, it's not very virtuosic. It's very simple and sentimental. And really, it's this lovely song about roses fading at the end of summer. So it's like, it's just, it just really works for Emma, right? So here are the lyrics of the first verse. Tis the last rose of summer left blooming alone. All her lovely companions are faded and gone. No flower of her kindred, no rosebud is nigh. To reflect back her blushes and give sigh for sigh. Aww. <gasps> So this is really evoking that English rose kind of motif and would have definitely had that English drawing room appeal and just, you know, her as kind of an English rose. It's the perfect kind of song for Emma to play. It, it is. Yeah. So, so I love the song choice that they do in the adaptation. So, you know, so far, so good. But... <laughs> Zan has thoughts on this. I, okay, I do. Everybody. I do. Okay. <laughs> so what bothers me a bit about this scene is that they have Anya Taylor-Joy performing this song with a certain kind of ineptitude which doesn't mesh with her character, I don't think. So, so she plays all the notes right, all the words are right, but she's like slowing down and speeding up in certain bits in order to make it a more dramatic kind of delivery. So the last line of the song that she sings is basically the speaker of the poem is like grieving the loss of this last rose, right? So it reads, 
oh, who would inhabit this bleak world alone, right? It's kind of, it's a sad, it's a sad line. So when they have Emma perform this in the film, however, she rushes through the first half of that line, like, oh, who would inhabit? And she does it really fast. And then she pauses and like dramatically sighs and then like sings the rest of this bleak world alone, like it's a funeral dirge, right? So it's like, it's this, (laughs) it's showing her in this like really inept kind of performance. I just, it's, it bothers me. Uh, it is funny, though. Right. I mean, oh, sure. there's that. Sure. I mean, it does have comedic payoff, definitely, especially because the way that they filmed it, they cut to Jane Fairfax, who actually looks like a bit concerned or confused when like Emma Emma's making this pause. Jane Fairfax's eyebrows are like raising. She's like, what is happening? So like, like I get that it has the comic payoff, but to me, it bothers me because it undercuts or cheapens the fact that Emma is actually a proficient. Perhaps not a great proficient, <laughs> but she is proficient. She's proficient. So her to be able to competently play that piece is something that we expect. However, I do appreciate the nod to Thomas More. And as always, I feel like I have to say, clearly, I need to rewatch this. I have at least seen this one. <laughs> I did. I did see it when it came out, but I saw it the one time. Yeah. And that was, it's been, what, two years? So time to revisit. I, <laughs> I actually made a whole list. I should post this on our Instagram. I made a whole list of like, here are all the Jane Austen adaptations <laughs> that I have not watched. In a very long time or ever? No. Ever? Mostly forever. Oh. Yeah. Uh, if we added the ones that I've only seen one time, like 15 years ago, it would be even longer. <laughs> I might need the internet to guide me through this journey of like, okay, Diane, come on, you got to get with the program. I haven't seen any of the BBC ones from like, what, the 70s or 80s? Like that oh, whole yeah. set, I have not seen a single one. None of them. <laughs> None of them have I watched. So because this scene that we we're talking about in, in the 2020 adaptation, you know, with the talk about The Last Rose of Summer, we thought we would leave you today with a clip of The Last Rose of Summer by Thomas Moore and John Stevenson as kind of our outro music. So thank you to the performing group Salinière for letting us share their arrangement of the song. And you can learn more about Salinière on their website, which is www.salinière, which is spelled S-A-L-O-N-N-I-E-R-E-S.org. And you can find their album on iTunes or wherever you find your music. And you can find us on Instagram at the thing about Austin and on Twitter at Austin underscore things. You can also check out our website, thethingaboutaustin.com, and email us at thethingaboutaustin at gmail.com. And we'll be off next week, but we will be back the following week to talk about Catherine's love of baseball. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.